electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. The debt deal clearing a key hurdle and heading for a vote in the House. That's a good thing, says one of my guests, because a failure to get it done fast could have an impact for decades to come in one part of the market. She tells us which one and the one area she's very bullish on right now. Plus, the next big AI movers could be in the freight industry, according to Morgan Stanley. They see four names with the biggest potential impact. The analyst behind that note is here to make his case. And mortgage demand just fell to its lowest level in three months. So how is this mortgage stock up 17% year to date? We've got the name and the CEO ahead. But first, let's start with a look at today's markets. And it's red across the board here as we look to close out the month of May. And this, by the way, is ahead of the debt deal vote that's expected later today. In fact, the Dow is down more than 300 points at the session low. We're about 100 off that now. The S&P is down 30 points to 41.73 in the red for the month now uh, with today's decline for the S&P, that is. The Nasdaq, although it's down almost a percent today, is still on track for about a 5% gain and its third positive month in the row. Let's get to some of today's standouts, where SoFi is up again as student loan payments are expected to resume as part of that debt deal. It's up another 12% today, and it's up about 24% this week alone, just in the last couple of sessions, really, since that debt deal was reached. Elsewhere, retailer Capri, which owns brands from Kate Spade to Versace, down big today after its earnings. It had a modest revenue and earnings beat, largely due to strength overseas, but its guidance for Q1 was shockingly bad. That said, they still kept the full-year guidance better. The stock is down about 10%, almost reminds you of what Sachs said a short time ago about luxury being in recession. And the weakness in Versace in particular here is certainly consistent with that. And, of course, Advanced Auto Parts tanking on a more than 30 percent. They had a revenue miss. They also slashed their dividend almost entirely after posting earnings. And, by the way, this kind of problem it comes after a double beat it had just in the last quarter back in February. Some price cuts appear to be a culprit as it struggles to compete with rivals AutoZone and O'Reilly. We'll have more on the stock a little bit later on. But stocks are falling on concerns about these global market risks. And the U.S. President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy are still trying to round up support for their debt ceiling deal ahead of a House vote. Last week, Fitch put U.S. AAA credit rating on uh, negative watch due to the debt fight. Meanwhile, a surprise jump in job openings just this morning, renewing some concerns that a strong labor market will push the Fed to hike rates again in June. And if that isn't enough, consumer debt continues to grow, topping $17 trillion for the first time. And let's not forget the fallout from SVB, which continues. Brian Reynolds from Reynolds Strategy saying this is the worst sustained decline in bank deposits in at least 50 years. Now, on top of those domestic concerns, China last night just out with some surprisingly weak economic data. Factory activity contracting more than expected in May. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index is now touching bear market territory as China's post-COVID recovery hopes fade and tensions with the U.S. remain high. Officials are now accusing a Chinese fighter jet of making an unnecessarily aggressive maneuver in the South China Sea. The negative business sentiment forcing J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon to call for real engagement from both sides. Against this backdrop, what should investors do? Joining me now is Elizabeth Burton. She's chief investment strategist at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Elizabeth, it's great to see you. I mean, let's just start with kind of knee-jerk advice. Stocks rallying in spite of all this because of it. Do investors stick with that? Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me. 
I, I think it's uh, one of our positions would be to be maybe aggressively neutral here. I think that the outlook for stocks is still up in question. We've got a lot of risks that are coming forward to us. Um, although it looks like we're going to get a deal on the debt ceiling here, if we don't, there could be risks both sides on the rates question. So I think that there's still some time here to be patient. And as you hear it a million times, you're getting paid to be patient. You know, you also make a really interesting point that in some ways retail investors are able to be a lot more nimble in this environment. And, and anecdotally, I see it all the time. People are on Treasury Direct. They're trying to, you know, buy T-bills and everything like that. They, do they actually have a leg up on kind of institutional investors or pension funds at, the, at this moment? Sure, Kelly. Well, so think about your own portfolio. If you want to go out and buy something, you just don't do it. You normally don't consult a board of folks and you don't get a lot of feedback. Maybe your family. I'm not sure what your kids think about the right. stock market. Um, but in, institutional investors have to go through a process. I mean, if you think about it, some institutions haven't even invested in private equity yet. And that's been a trend that's been going on for decades, right? So I think it is a lot harder, and particularly because they have asset allocation constraints. So when we hear look to short duration, which, by the way, I think is still a good place to be looking on the shorter mm-hmm. duration end of things, that's a lot easier for you or me to go out and buy, you know, a two-year bill or a one-year bill. It's much harder when you're trying to track a benchmark or when you have less ability to be flexible in your asset allocation. Yeah, it's true. Just before we move on, there's one area you're very bullish on that I think a lot of people have building concerns, we could call them, private credit. I mean, it's almost such an umbrella. It could be a catch-all, but right. as, an, as a place to look for opportunity, you still think this is one where the returns, are, you know, the risk and, and the, the returns justify the risk you're taking, I guess to say? Sure. So if we were having this conversation in January, I think there was a debate whether or not you wanted to lock up your capital and go with private credit or whether you could get a good return in the public markets. And now I think because we've seen some stresses in the system, now is an even better time to be bullish on private credit. If And a lot of these deals, you are going back to the same companies, same folks you did business with before, but the pricing looks better, right? And you might have more control in a private market environment to negotiate the small details that you think are really crucial to the deal. Also, as you know, when when liquidity flows out of one space, it's often a really good time to get back in. And not only is liquidity potentially going to be a challenge, we'll see on the debt ceiling uh, in the coming months, but also on the allocator perspective. So I mostly work with the largest institutional allocators, and it's no surprise to you that they're facing liquidity constraints, right? They're way overweight private markets in most cases, and so allocating that incremental dollar is challenging. So U.S. is maybe $3.5 trillion of public pension assets. That's not the whole world. But if $3.5 trillion is not going to be able to put as much money in as they used to, that could provide an opportunity for those that do have the liquidity. It's a really, it's more of a buyer's market right. <laughs> for, for those who are who can get in right now. Let me bring in Steve Whiting, who also joins us. He's chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth Management. Steve, it's good to see you. And I just wanted to ask you in particular you. about some of the risk. I think you guys just kind of pared back your overweight on China a little bit. And the data just continues to disappoint. What do you make of that? Well, look, I would bear in mind that we're still seeing distortions in the American economy after the initial hit more than three years later. China's supposed to sort all of this out in six months. Now, if Chinese policy gets this right or not is still to be seen. We're looking at a market that's trading about 10 times earnings. That's an economy that's producing actually zero headline inflation with record high youth unemployment. If you take a look at what a post, uh, an economy that has actually fallen into a hard landing looks like, Those are economies that actually produce strong growth and strong returns one or two years later. It's really difficult. We wish we could say the same thing for the U.S., but it's sitting on a lot of success. Uh, Up recently at 62% the world market cap, 
Now, we have nine times more money in the U.S. equity market for global clients than we do have China. But in terms of diversifying risk, you're not going to find that in too many other markets. So, yeah, I, I hear you kind of justifying why people should maintain exposure, which tells you how negative sentiment really has become. I mean, I've seen takes about how China's the new Japan and it's completely kind of had this bubble and it just can't and it can't become a consumer led economy. And I, I don't know, they, they seem the data seem to be sort of moving in that direction. So look, China has some Japan risks from a policy perspective, from being a middle-income economy. You can't put all of your chips just on China. What we did, again, was diversify into a wider Asia with some of that money. But think about other places in the world. You know, Brazil trades at seven times earnings with a 7% dividend yield. Everyone thinks uh, its government is in a place that's really going to harm its economy. That's low expectations. And, you know, blessed he is with low expectations for future returns. Fair enough. Um, I don't know, you know, Liz, whether you spend a lot of time, you know, looking at China or just being glad that the U.S. market still, you know, is more dynamic. But just as a parting thought, if China is not contributing as much growth or as much inflation to the global economy, that's going to have huge consequences. It will. And I would say that this week, more than weeks in the past, is one of the questions that I'm getting from some of our investors. But I do think it makes sense to look ex-U.S. It's been really easy to make well, it's never easy to make money, but it's been easy to look at our home base and shop locally the last decade. And I think that we really need to start looking ex-U.S. and get out there. You know, don't buy the house on Zillow. Go and physically get on the ground and see if there's a wonky third bathroom. Travel abroad. See what, what you like out there because it's going to get tougher and tougher. Although I look now, you know, dollar index up again, uh, 104. I mean, I always feel like why have double risk, you know, both to, to the market you might be choosing and also currency risk sure. that either one of those could kind of move against you. Well, on the, the currency risk and the dollar risk issue is interesting. And I think, again, going back to the retail institutional play, we have seen on the retail side and on the smaller allocator side, um, investors adding gold to their portfolios. And if we're going into this environment, let, we don't know what's going to be the rate outcome, right? But if we think there might be higher inflation for longer or stickier high rates, adding gold to your portfolio, commodities portfolio, especially if stock bond correlations remain positive and sticky for some time, those sorts of moves make sense. So still diversifying your portfolio, looking outside where you've traditionally looked is, is probably what you want to be focusing on right now. All right. We will leave it there. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Elizabeth Burton with Goldman Sachs, Thank Steve you. Whiting of City. Appreciate your time today. If the FOMO and momentum in stocks lately feels a bit like deja vu, you're not imagining things. My next guest says we're seeing an upside panic in semi-stocks in particular that it's reminiscent of 2021. So should investors be chasing or fading the move? Joining me now is Chris Murphy, co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. I guess it depends on your time frame, Chris. You could chase it for a little while and do well. Well, you know, I would say actually kind of in between. So the easy kind of swift move in the AI craze has kind of happened. This might actually be the time that you would want to swap into options. So, you know, you take some of your downside risk off the table to buying outright uh, equities here. Uh, you swap into an option structure because you know what your max loss is. Let's say you're to look at a call spread in something like NVIDIA. Um, you know what your max loss is, uh, you can position for upside, and you take advantage of the fact that there is that 2021 kind of feeling, you know, panic to the upside on those way upside calls that you actually sell as part of a call spread. Interesting. And so what would your broader kind of point be about how the stock market is likely to do in the next couple of months then? You know, I would say it's certainly not going to be a straight line. You know, we're already seeing that a little bit today. Um, 
But if you were to just look at the options market, I know I already mentioned those way upside tails being bid up. There's certainly a desire for that extreme upside. Now, you you know, you got to point out, you know, we're always looking at probabilities in the options and we know, you know, what we don't know. Um, but when you're when you're looking at, you know, the bid to the upside, you know, you might see let's take, for example, uh, NVIDIA today. Uh, there was a buyer of uh, 15,000 of the July 500, 550 call spreads. Now, NVIDIA is trading around $380. Now, this call spread buyer is not, you know, extremely sure NVIDIA is going above 500. They just see that the options are giving you 20 to 1 payout, and they might think it's more like a 10% probability. So um, I, I would say the options market is starting to price more tail risk to the upside in uh, a lot of these AI-related stocks. More tail risk to the upside. That's interesting. I take your point about, you know, maybe NVIDIA over 500, uh, those those odds. What about tail risk to the downside? How would we kind of gauge that? Uh, you know, because I think Bespoke had a stat yesterday about how we, you know, the S&P is the most shorted, even the two years most shorted, you know. So people seem to be piling on with the idea of, you know, the Fed kind of crashing us into the wall here. Well, you know, we're not really seeing in, in the options market, we're not seeing as much of that, you know, downside tail fear. I think when people see uh, S&P skew moving higher, um, you know, they think that people are panicking. It really could just be that people, you know, discretionary investors are finally starting to move into the stock market and they need some protection on. So, you know, from our seat, we're not necessarily seeing, you know, any kind of near-term fear about this. I mean, you know, this recession, we've been waiting for it to happen for like a year now, and it just keeps getting pushed further out. Uh, the most interesting trading we're probably seeing there is actually in, in the TLT, looking for uh, at the end of the year, uh, rates to be lower, which would probably be because there is a recession. Right. Those longer term rates, especially. There's been a lot of focus. Wall Street Journal had a piece, but just kind of in general on the idea of what quants or sophisticated investors are doing to, I guess you'd say, sell volatility or this idea of kind of pushing it to the downside as we clear that wall of worry we mentioned earlier. Um, is that kind of setting us up for a, for a spring back move at some point? Or does this make sense to you that the markets just continue to kind of be placid and move in a range? You know, I, I like the idea of I like the argument that we're looking to be a little bit more range bound uh, for the end of the year. You know, if you kind of think about it, we're at the top of this range, like the easy money in the AI trade, like I said, has probably been made. Those CTAs that you mentioned in that article, they're mostly full right now. So they're not an incremental buyer. But then on the downside, you know, even look at the jolts number today, the resilient economy of the U.S. just continues to outperform and you know, there are arguments or statistics out there that discretionary investors are not really fully in the market. So, you know, whether it's the quants or not, I think there's a lot of arguments for more range bound second half of the year uh, for the broader market. Yeah, I don't know. I look at Chicago Fed, some of these other data points, they seem more worrisome. But I guess the point is there's an offset for almost all of them right now. And that's keeping us where we are. Chris, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Chris Murphy with Susquehanna. Coming up, the transports have sat out the rally this year. But if big tech and the chip makers were the first wave of AI, planes, trains and trucks might actually be next. We'll talk about the impact that could have on the transport stocks ahead. Plus, advanced auto parts on track for its worst day ever. C3 AI wrapping up its best month in history and Macy's hitting its lowest level in over two years. What would our trader do with these stocks, especially with C3 AI and Macy's on deck with earnings? 
We'll ask an earnings exchange coming up. And as we go to break, here's a look at the markets where the Dow is still down less than 200 points right now, about half percent drops across the board, a little bit bigger for the Russells today. Ten-year yield back below 365. We're back after this. CEOs are in the business of making decisions, and it's the outcome of those decisions that define their success. Hi, I'm Sam Reese, CEO of Vistage. For more than 65 years, we've engaged with more than 100,000 executives on this twisting leadership journey that we call a life of climb. Join me on a life of climb podcast to hear firsthand stories from CEOs about the challenges they've overcome and the lessons they've learned along the way. Listen to a life of climb wherever you get your podcasts or at vistage.com slash podcast. Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at EatonVance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's talk about a very under-the-radar beneficiary of AI, because it could be the freight business. My next guest says the impact will be felt across the sector, from logistics to parcels and trucking. And there are four names on that wall in particular that he says will see the biggest impact. Here to tell us which ones is Ravi Shankar, equity analyst at Morgan Stanley. It's good to see you, Ravi. And I guess drumroll, please, if you want to start with the names of this overall idea. This is a very tough year for freight. They could certainly use a catalyst. Uh, yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, look, I think in the freight transportation space, uh, the cycle is very important, and what's happening at the macro, inventory levels, consumer spending, et cetera, are what drive the stock on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but this is an industry that can really benefit from technology over time, uh, and you've seen that in everything from uh, autonomous trucks to electrification to blockchain uh, and now AI. And so I think the long-term direction of this industry uh, will absolutely be transformed by technology adoption. You say it will have the biggest impact on the three PLs, and you'll have to explain to me what that even means. Absolutely. So three PLs are a group of companies within freight transportation who are effectively brokers. They are hmm. uh, truck brokers, they are freight forwarders, they are asset light companies. They don't actually own any assets. Uh, but what they do is they act as a marketplace uh, connecting uh, companies that uh, want to hire a truck or hire a ship or hire a train to move their freight uh, with the owners uh, of the trucks and trains themselves. So kind of uh, when you look at this marketplace opportunity, uh, something like AI, which can uh, really bring automation, process improvement, uh, can really help drive efficiency. Uh, It can help drive end-to-end automation. Uh, It can uh, improve the security and resilience of the transaction uh, and lower costs across the board. And if I were them, I might choose my next earnings call to, to use that AI acronym that has proven to be so powerful. So EXPD, JB Hunt, LSTR, RXO, uh, you all highlight. Let's move on to the parcels where you think UPS could be a leader there. And again, I mean, this is all against such a tough macro that, you know, if the economy were firing and looking better, I bet people would be more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt in terms of their AI you know, benefit. But how do you even see AI benefiting a company like UPS? 
Oh, look, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. And kind of UPS has a number of idiosyncratic catalysts that they need to deal with, uh, including the post-pandemic mean reversion of, uh, of parcel volumes, the uh, obviously union contract they're negotiating right now, and a few other issues. But over time, uh, again, the, the parcel carriers, both FedEx and UPS, have a lot of data they deal with. Uh, and whether it's uh, the optimization of routes or uh, how to handle packages across the country uh, or uh, just kind of giving a better customer service experience with more automation and uh, kind of giving you the ability to track and trace in a better way. Uh, we think, again, uh, the parcels kind of are a hybrid company which sort of fall somewhere in between that asset heavy and asset light uh, where they do have a lot of data uh, where, again, AI can drive a lot of efficiency and cost savings over time. Uh, but again, that is an overtime thing. In the meantime, uh, there are a few uh, macro and idiosyncratic challenges that they have to get through. Oh, sure. And that kind of leads right, right into trucking, where you think there maybe could be a few beneficiaries. But I would add that trucking seems to be going through one of its worst periods in history right now. So how do you balance that? Uh, absolutely. So look, we, we actually are constructive uh, on, on the cycle, on the freight cycle. We think that uh, we could be getting to a point soon where inventory levels normalize and, and then the back half of the year uh, is actually a positive inflection in the trucking cycle. Uh, and so that may make the trucking stocks investable uh, in, in the near term anyway. Uh, but even beyond that, again, when you look at that combination of the potential of autonomous trucks, uh, electrification of the truck fleet, uh, again, network optimization uh, and customer service automation uh, using tools like AI, uh, we think uh, trucking names, whether it's a truckload carrier or a less than truckload carrier, uh, can absolutely look to reduce costs and improve the efficiency of their operations yeah. uh, using these technology tools over time. No, I hope you're, I think you will be right, obviously, over time. It's just a matter of, you know, can they kind of get it uh, helping them before the, the macro gets much tougher? Like you said, maybe we're already at a turning point. Robbie, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Ravi Shankar with Morgan Stanley. Still ahead, oil on pace for its worst month since November. We'll talk to Brian Sullivan about why and where it could go from here with WTI around 68 a barrel. Those declines pushing the energy sector as a whole down 10% in May for its worst month in a year. Tech, meanwhile, up by that amount. And that's powering the Nasdaq to a better than 5% gain just this month. The exchange is back after this. CEOs are in the business of making decisions, and it's the outcome of those decisions that define their success. Hi, I'm Sam Reese, CEO of Vistage. For more than 65 years, we've engaged with more than 100,000 executives on this twisting leadership journey that we call a life of climb. Join me on Life of Climb podcast to hear firsthand stories from CEOs about the challenges they've overcome and the lessons they've learned along the way. Listen to a life of climb wherever you get your podcasts or at vistage.com slash podcast. Welcome back to The Exchange. Crude is on pace for its worst month this year, the worst month since about a year ago when it really started to crash uh, back in last June from those super high levels. Every energy stock in the S&P is down at least 7% in May. The worst ones include APA, One Oak, Devon, Hess, and Marathon, all down about 14%. And if we had one more space on that graphic, you'd see Exxon down 13% for its worst month since 2020. So what gives? Let's ask Brian Sullivan. I mean, this has been, you know, I'm, I wish it were better news, Brian. Or maybe it's great news for the consumer. I don't know. Yeah, it is. Gasoline prices have come down. Oil prices down 40% over the past year. So that's good news. So the question is why, right? We talk about this China reopening story. That's the bull case. Well, we had some weaker Chinese data. Let's go into sort of the, the, the bear case. And then you could ask me maybe about the bull case. We'll see. All right, a couple things here. Number one, still a lot of Russian oil on the market, Kelly. And they're selling it at a discount. So if you can buy Russian oil 
Maybe you're in Saudi Arabia. You buy oil from Russia and then resell yours. You get it a little bit cheaper. You've got increased U.S. production. I'll hit that in a moment. We are back to nearly the top of the pre-pandemic levels. And, of course, that weak Chinese data today, you could throw in a stronger dollar if we had more room on that graphic, Kelly, which, you know, when a dollar goes up, it makes it more expensive. What about U.S. production? All right, so right before the pandemic, we topped out at exactly 13 million barrels per day on average in November of 2019. Pandemic hits, lockdown hits. We go to 9.7 million in May of 21. Last month, the last month we have data for, which is April, we're at 12.7. So we are creeping back up, Kelly, to those pre-pandemic highs in terms of U.S. production, which is also, by the way, why natural gas has absolutely collapsed. Hold that thought for a second. You'll appreciate this. Uh, the embargo was broken for our Fed speak. Let's bring in Steve Leisman, who's got some headlines from Fed Governor Philip Jefferson. Steve, what can you tell us? Important remarks, uh, Kelly, from uh, Philip Jefferson. He is the nominee to be the vice chair of the Federal Reserve. And he is talking about skipping a rate hike. He says skipping a rate hike at a coming meeting would allow the committee to see more data. A decision to hold, however, he warns, is not does not mean the Fed has reached the peak rate. So it seems to me that he is setting up here essentially what people are calling a hawkish pause, one where the Fed stops but reserves the right to come back and hike again. He says a year is just not long enough for the economy to feel the full effects of higher rate heights. So he's concerned about the lagged effects of the 500 basis points the Federal Reserve has raised. Higher interest rates, he worries, could worsen the stress at the banks. He expects Growth to slow this year due to tighter financial conditions, low consumer sentiment, heightened uncertainty, and a decline in savings from the pandemic. He does say inflation has come down substantially, but remains too high. But he expects tighter credit standards uh, to impact the economy, though the impact, he says, is uncertain. He's not expecting a recession, he says, but he's concerned that if you raise rates too high, together with lower earnings, it could test the ability of businesses to service their debt. Finally, one of the things is weakness in commercial real estate is going to put some strains on some lenders. A little bit of context here, Kelly. A confirmed vice chair for um, uh, the Federal Reserve Board um, would be somebody who is typically, call it a pulling guard for the chair. They may come out and throw out ideas ahead of the chair. Certainly, you would not expect there to be much daylight in the outlook of policy between the chair and the vice chair. Phil Jefferson is still the nominee, so we don't know if that's the case yet. But the idea of skipping a meeting is something that you could have inferred from comments that uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell gave a week ago. However, his committee has sounded a lot more hawkish, or certainly the members of the committee who have spoken have sounded more hawkish and talked more about a rate hike. So here we are right now with you've got the chair, I would say, and the vice chair talking about the possibility of skipping a meeting but members of the committee. So there does seem to be a split. However, the leadership, Phil Jefferson, using the term skipping a meeting. That and is let fascinating. Let me tell you one other thing, uh, Kelly. Yeah, one other thing here, which is that going into this speech, the probability of a June rate hike was 68%. It's now 53%. So that's come down. Sorry, it's now 48%. It is moving as we speak here. And I don't know if that's also moving the short end of the bond market, but certainly the probability of a rate hike. And I'll tell you what's happened here. We've gone from a 525 to 522. So they're baking out much more 50-50 now on that June rate hike. 
Steve, thank you. Really important stuff. We appreciate it. Watching the Dow, it is moving a little bit off of those lows, down 190. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit more of a delayed reaction, though. And, Brian, this kind of feeds into what we were just talking about, because to some extent, this is a macro story, right? And so we don't have to overly belabor that point. But going back to the direction of crude, the fact that it's crashed the way that it has, it certainly would give the, the, the skip camp uh, some you know, breathing room, let's call it. It's so interesting, too, because there's been this has been the most called for non-recession recession ever. Right. I mean, for a year for a year now, recession, recession, the consumer has held up. In fact, this goes kind of what Steve was talking about. Listen to this. You want to make the bull case for oil increasing U.S. demand 20.4 million barrels per day. The EIA, the government just raising its estimates for U.S. demand. So if the consumer is going to collapse, then she is not using or he is not using less oil. Oil, the deaths of oil have been greatly exaggerated. You got the OPEC meeting on Sunday. They're doing it on Sunday. I'm not going to be there. We'll see if they make another surprise cut or whatever. And also degrading Russian oil infrastructure. They're selling a lot of oil. They're not making a lot of money. Oil facilities take a lot of money to upkeep. You wonder if that will just continue to degrade Russian production over time. What do you think is going to be the single biggest factor for crude from here? Is it just the fact that maybe it's overly sold and sentiment has, has bottomed and can now turn? Or is it something like, hey, we get a Chinese data point that surprises to the upside or a supply data point that, that's worse than expected? The hardest part is that China is cutting off access to data from their economy to the West. We did that story on last call last night. They're sort of making it harder to get information. You wonder how oil traders, if they can't get all the info they want on the Chinese economy, Chinese air travel, Chinese auto travel, gasoline demand, what they might do. And don't listen, don't count out OPEC. I don't think they're going to make another cut. They made this surprise one April 2nd, but it's OPEC, which means you never know. And they just invited the media yesterday in person. Does it matter? Because so far, the you know energy market has continued to sell any headlines about possible cuts and completely kind of shrug them off. Well, you had Prince Abdulaziz the head of the Saudi energy minister saying that traders have been ouching or may ouch, sort of a veiled warning. Some people say he was talking about the past. Saudis may need X dollars to fund their ambitious goals. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see what happens on Sunday. I think two things. Number one, U.S. production and demand, most important. OPEC probably second. And then Chinese demand, from what we know of it, Probably third. Yeah, not to mention, does Russia push ahead because it needs the money and, you know, it just wants those barrels out there. Yep. A lot to ponder. Thank you, Brian. Sure. We appreciate it, Brian Sullivan. For more, be sure to tune in to Last Call tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you don't want to miss it. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. The German government is ordering Russia to shut down four out of five Russian consulates in the country as tensions grow over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The move in response to Moscow's decision to limit the number of German officials in Russia to 350. Germany will also close all of its own consulates in Russia, except for the one in St. Petersburg and the German embassy in Moscow. Russia's foreign ministry called the decision ill-considered and provocative and said it will not go, quote, unanswered. Utah Republican Representative Chris Stewart announcing today he will step down from Congress before his term ends because of his wife's health. Republicans hold a razor-thin majority in the House right now, and a brief vacancy could make passing legislation more difficult for the GOP leadership. The U.S. Department of Transportation proposing a new rule that will require all new vehicles to have more effective version of automatic braking that can stop vehicles at higher speeds and detect cyclists and pedestrians even at night. The new rule would make the braking systems mandatory within three years of going into effect. Kelly, back to you. See you in about... 
26 minutes. Tyler, thank you. Coming up, three names deep in the red, including one which just hit a new 52-week high yesterday. We'll be talking auto parts, AI, and accessories next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. One huge earnings miss and two names down big ahead of their reports. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Advanced Auto, C3AI, and Macy's in this edition of Earnings Exchange. Let's start with the colossal earnings miss from Advanced Auto Parts. The stock down more than 30%, by far its worst single-day performance ever, at its lowest level since March 2020. And this report had all kinds of bad, weak margins, negative comps, higher-than-expected costs, lowered guidance, and a massive dividend cut. And all of this on the heels of a really strong beat in their fourth quarter. Here to give us the trades today, Matt Maley is Miller Tabak's chief market strategist. Matt, it's great to see you. And I'll turn it over to you. What do you do with Advance Auto? It's, it's just so hard to go after a stock like this when you have that kind of negative news. I mean, it's, it's one thing when you have negative earnings. There's another thing to have really negative guidance. But then on top of all that, you slash the dividend. I mean, you don't just cut it slightly. You majorly slash uh, to the dividend. Uh, this, this creates uh, some serious problems for, for, for the stock and for the company overall, because some of this stuff seems to be company-specific. I mean, we've seen some, some margin uh, problems in that industry uh, from some of the other auto retailers recently, but nothing like this. So uh, I, I really worry about it. Now, I'm also a little worried about the uh, consumer overall, because you know we're starting to see, you know, we're here from a lot of different companies that they're worried about the consumers standing, consumers starting to pull on their horns a little bit. We're also starting to see it in places like Visa and MasterCard where their stocks are, are starting to roll over for the first time in a while. So, hmm. uh, you know, the retail area is something I'm a little bit worried about. But when you get the company-specific things here, uh, this is a stock you need to avoid until you have a better understanding of, of why they miss their, their things by, by such a wide margin. Yeah, we're showing that. And, and Visa, which is down 5% this month. I'm glad you highlighted that. So let's move on to something a little bit more idiosyncratic that has been working. C3AI having an unsurprisingly remarkable 2023, up 250%, but giving back about 10% of that today. Now, last quarter, they hiked their previous guidance about two weeks ago. The manager team saying the business overall for enterprise AI is the most active they've seen and seems to be accelerating. So we're watching to see if that's true and how their path to profitability is progressing. You'll remember short seller Carisdale Capital also accused them of accounting issues back in April. The CEO has said the letter contains not a word of truth. All right, Matt Maley, C3AI, the only part of the market that's really been working. What do you do with this stock? Well, the hard part about this is, as you just mentioned, Kelly, is they they, they pre-announced just two weeks ago. So you're going to think, are they going to do a you know a, a repeat of what we saw from Nvidia, where they just absolutely uh, you know clobber expectations and just knock it out of the park? It's hard to do that just two weeks after you pre-announced. So and and of course the stock is up 60 percent since since that uh, pre-announcement, 150 uh, percent uh, this month just just on its own. And we've seen until today anyway a parabolic rise in in the stock and. And even if you think this thing's going to 10,000 by the end of the year, no stock moves in a straight line. And again, like you mentioned, they really haven't made uh, money yet. They're, 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 <laughs> they readily admit that. So I just, again, it's not something I want to be shorting here because of you know all the momentum with all these stocks. I mean, their ticker is AI, so I'm sure they're going to mention the term AI plenty of times in their conference call. Uh, but the point is, uh, I just think when uh, you got to be careful up here after big parabolic moves are always followed at some point by a pullback, and you should be able to buy the stock at a cheaper price at some point in the coming weeks. All right, so sort of on the sidelines for our first two. Given what you've said, I have a guess of where you might be going with the next one, but let's see. Macy's is our last one today because they're about to report, and they're already down nearly 40% since the last earnings. They're sitting at a 
52-week low. We've got a weakening macro, some softening consumer spending, increased promotional activity could all cut into results and, and their forward-looking guidance. So would you steer clear of this stock as well, Matt? To be honest with you, no, I think this could be an opportunity because, I mean, you got to look at what, what's the situation. What is being, well, we talked about AI there, uh, you know, is, is that uh, is that stock uh, already priced in a lot of its good news? It, 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 it looks like it may have. With Macy's, all this bad news that you just referred to is absolutely true, but the stock is incredibly cheap. Like you said, it's down 40%. It's trading at uh, you know just over three times earnings. Wow. It has a dividend yield of almost 5%. And uh, they're, they're, uh, the, the dividend cover ratio is 15%, so uh, almost 15%, it's actually less than 15%. So there shouldn't be any problem with them maintaining that, 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 uh, that dividend. So it will pay you to wait. I mean, I am concerned about the consumer, but when they price in this type of things, some of these old line consumers have been around for a long time. I mean, look what happened with the Gap stores, GPS. Uh, that stock uh, saw a real nice, uh, surprising uh, rally, and we could mm -hmm. see a similar thing out of Macy's. You know, we were jumping up and down last year when the home builder PEs got to like two and a half and three times. I had no idea Macy's was that cheap. I can't imagine getting that excited about it, but I, I, you don't often get uh, or multiples like that around. It's an interesting point. Matt, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Matt Maley with Miller Tayback. Still ahead, the tech sector has seen some pretty massive layoffs already, but there's one group in particular that's been disproportionately impacted. We'll tell you who and the potential long-term fallout for the sector and the economy. That's next. Welcome back. You just heard from the Fed's Phil uh, Jefferson. Now it's Philly Fed President Patrick Harker on the wires. Let's get to Steve Leisman for those details. Steve? Yeah, I think the headline, Kelly, is skip to my Lou, my darling, because there's <laughs> Phil, uh, Philly's uh, uh, Harker talking about saying, I think we can, we can skip uh, a rate hike at the next meeting. But he does caution a skip is not a pause. In other words, the Fed would stop raising rates for a little while. He's still concerned about labor inflation or labor uh, higher, higher wages driving up inflation. But he says the Fed could stop for a while. So that's two uh, Fed officials talking about a skip in just the last, uh, uh, what do you call it, 15 minutes. And I want to tell you what's happened to the probabilities. Uh, we went into both these comments with a 68, called a 70 percent probability of a rate hike. There's now essentially a 70% probability of the Fed standing pat. So they're really baking out the June rate hike. And it's still about an even chance now for July. So unclear. Now, what they're trying to do here, Kelly, what's important is set up what you might call a hawkish pause or a, I guess a hawkish skip at this point where they're reserving the right to come back. They don't want the market to think they're done necessarily, but they are talking about potentially skipping uh, a rate hike at the June meeting. Some big moves in bond yields, I mean, relatively speaking, but uh, yeah. not much in stocks yet. Steve, we'll see. Uh, thank you very much. Our Steve Leesman, Dow still down about sure. 172. Meanwhile, Amazon, Google and IBM are among the top employers of H-1B visa workers. And that group has been particularly hard hit in the mass layoffs that we've been seeing in the tech space. Seema Modi is here with the numbers and the fallout. This is surprising, Seema. It is, Kelly. And you know what's interesting is not only are Microsoft, NVIDIA and Google part of the $1 trillion club, but they also have something else in common. They're all led by immigrant CEOs, two of which, Satya Nadella and Sundar Pichai, were on H-1B visas at one point. While the top 30 H-1B employers, including Amazon and Meta, hired 34,000 H-1B workers last year, data from the Economic Policy Institute shows those same companies have laid off 85,000 workers in 2022 
and early 2023. The minute a foreign worker on an H-1B visa loses his or her job, they've got 60 days, just 60 days to find a new opportunity or risk getting deported and separated from their family. And that is creating a sense of unease for many high-skilled workers in Silicon Valley that we spoke to. And it's disproportionately impacting the Asian community with Indians and Chinese making up about 50% or more of H-1B visa holders. All the skills I've developed are very applicable to American market. Uh, when I go to India, it's very hard to say, uh, can I get a job in the exact same skill set with the same factor and same industry? Immigration lawyers, advocates that we spoke to say they are working around the clock to differentiate these H-1B workers from other immigrant cases, touting their contributions to the tech industry. In fact, there's an interesting analysis from MIT Labs that found the latest developments and breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, Kelly, are being driven by foreign-born scientists. So if we want to keep our lead, yeah. they would argue, let's keep them here. And you said both Sundar Pichai and Satya Nadella were once H-1B visa workers? Exactly. And in the past, they've written and been very open about um, their experience, about how it really opened the gateway to not only their success, but then them as CEOs, allowing them to employ many workers across the nation. Wasn't there an issue with, I, I know there's long been these issues with raising the cap and trying to get more workers, but then during the pandemic, did just remind me where we stand on that issue. That's a great point. During the Trump administration, there was um, some type of ban that was put in place on the number of H-1B workers that were allowed to enter the U.S. Since then, that has been lifted, but now the issue is with the layoffs, many of these H-1B workers are caught in a tough position because they only have 60 days to find a job, and many that we spoke to say that that given the current climate, that hasn't been easy to accomplish. Oh my gosh, you must feel so under the gun when yeah, that's the case. Yeah, they have kids. And, yeah. Oh, can you imagine? Seema, thanks. We appreciate it, Seema Modi. Coming up, mortgage rates climbing in May. They're now back above 7%. And while that's making a dent in mortgage demand, rising rates aren't necessarily a bad thing for the mortgage company, Mr. Cooper Group. We will hear directly from Chairman and CEO Jay Bray next. Welcome back. Mortgage rates have been on a bit of a roller coaster lately. They're back above 7%. It's put a big dent in demand once again. Diana Olick has the numbers for us. Diana? Yeah, and I'm going to roller coaster you again because they're actually now just back below 7%. And you can thank the debt limit as well as stronger economic news than expected for this crazy ride. Here's where we've been this month. The average rate on the 30-year fix started May in the high 6% range, then dropped back a bit until the debt ceiling worries, as well as that hotter-than-expected GDP reading last week, sent it shooting up over 7%. Then with a debt deal in play now, it dropped back into the sixes yesterday and today, down almost a full quarter of a percentage point from Friday. So no surprise, the sharp jump last week caused mortgage demand to drop to a three-month low. Applications to buy a home down 3% for the week and down 31% year-over-year. Refi demand down a steeper 7% for the week and off 45% from a year ago. And now I'm guessing you want to know, where do we go from here? Well, Friday is the next major mover with the monthly jobs report. If it is stronger than expected, it is entirely possible that mortgage rates, Kelly, could bounce back over 7%, and then we'd be saying what you just said before. Right, exactly. All over again. <laughs> Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. And while higher rates have been taking a bite out of mortgage demand, they've actually kind of provided a silver lining for my next guest. Shares of mortgage lender Mr. Cooper Group are up 15% year to date. Uh, let's talk about why. Joining us now is Jay Bray. He is the CEO. Jay, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Yeah, great to see you, Kelly. You know, Thanks we, for having me. I mean, not to get too, no one wants to hear about mortgage servicing, but maybe they want a stock that's doing <laughs> what yours is doing. So just explain that how that offset is working. 
Well, we really have a balanced business model. We do have an origination business, but the servicing business is our biggest business. And there, that if loans are not paying off, if prepay speeds are slower, then you're, those assets are going to stay on your books longer. They're going to be more valuable, and it's going to generate more cash flow. So our servicing business is really doing fantastic this year, which I think is why it's leading to the success of the stock. And and really, again, it, it speaks to our balanced business model. It's fascinating. You know, someone was asking me the other day about the 30-year mortgage and, and different things about how quickly, you know, if you pay twice a month versus monthly. And and I was saying, you know, well, typically you only have the mortgage for seven years because that's how often people might move, for instance. Um, and that has huge ramifications across the economy. Would you say that that kind of average assumption is now changing because the mortgage rate is so different from where it once was? Completely. Yeah, just think about it. Today, a significant number of our customers have 3% mortgage rates, 3.5% mortgage rates. And that is going to extend that life, you know, we think at least three, four or five years from that typical seven-year average. So, yes, undoubtedly. And again, that brings more value to that servicing asset. So it's exactly what's going to happen. And you know, we're seeing it. That's amazing. So if the average kind of turnover period was usually seven years, now you say it might be 10. And think about the that's actually stimulating the economy because it means the Fed's balance sheet isn't draining as quickly because it's, it's rolling off MBS. But they're not turning over right now, which is, you know, we're now we're way far from Mr. Cooper Group. So um, for your next couple of quarters, how do you anticipate business conditions and, and demand being like? Well, what we're really seeing is in the servicing market, we're seeing so many assets come to market. You're seeing a lot of consolidation. You're seeing, you know, large institutions that have said they want to shrink their mortgage footprint. So we think over the next three years, you're going to see 4.3 trillion in servicing actually trade, which is, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and that's the most significant number that I've ever seen. So wow. next few couple quarters for us, I think you'll continue to see growth. We're trying to get to a $5 million, $5 million customer level, which I think we will. You'll see consolidation, and you'll see us looking at portfolios. Yeah. If only you mentioned AI in your next call, just imagine. <laughs> you know, But I, I'm sure it plays a role in, in you know, it, it's, it's a artificial intelligence has been with us for some time. And I, I have to imagine, especially in the business of processing, there's a lot of machine learning or automation or whatever you want to call it that goes into that. It's a huge piece of our business. It really is. I mean, right now in our call center, we're actually using AI to better deliver customer service, like identify right up front what our customer needs are, what are they calling for, and then solve that problem for them in a more self-service, kind of you know friction-free manner. And so it's become a big piece of our business, and we're making a ton of investments in AI and machine learning and large language models. So you're right. Yeah. Is there any concern when we had the head of the CFPB the other day on our AI special? He said, you know, obviously discrimination becomes an issue with AI, things like that. I mean, how do you kind of make sure that the uh, that all of your standards apply to what the technology is doing? Well, the technology is constantly learning. Right. And so it's and it's not I mean, it, it's looking at what is the customer's real need and where they really you know need the most help and then and then directing it to that assistance. So it's not, it's colorblind, if you will. I mean, mm -hmm. there's nothing that's going on there that's going to direct it to one customer or another. It's actually just handling that individual's customer's issue. Yeah. And as we uh, also heard from uh, others, they say it has higher EQ than uh, it's, you know, that we were talking about <laughs> drive-ins in particular, is that they handle it even better sometimes. Uh, who, who of us have the patience, really? Jay, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate seeing you again. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Jay Bray is the CEO of Mr. Cooper Group. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.